Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stanko running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. It is the Great Point Podcast, as you just heard from the sounds of Yao G's. You can catch them on iTunes. I can't tell you how much fun this show has been thus far. We've had some great guests, had some good discussions. I've learned a ton. The guest that we've got for today's show, ESPN's Dave McMiniman, has been a friend for a long time. We knew each other when Dave was in high school. I worked as a host and producer for a high school sports show. We had national stories on LeBron James and Dewan Wagner and, and guys of that ilk. And Dave was uh, this upstart young journalist in high school who blew us all away with his preparation and his career-mindedness at the time. And so Dave and I started a, a long-lasting friendship, and I've been really excited to see him grow into the guy he is now. He's been writing for ESPN.com, covering the Lakers and now covers the, the Cavs, as well as doing a lot of national stories. And you see him on SportsCenter all the time. So, Dave, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Adam, uh, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I, I would think you could say what I impressed you with in high school was my willingness to give up my Friday nights because I didn't really have anything going on in high school <laughs> to come cover high school football uh, and hang out with you guys. Uh, but, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, well, we, we had some fun. It's some of my fondest memories. And yeah, we, we, we had a blast. But we were always blown away, the guys that worked on the show at the time, about how you knew that you wanted to get into uh, covering basketball and writing about basketball. And you were contributing as a high schooler, I think, to Slam Magazine and, and doing those types of things. What was your first memory as far as wanting to cover sports? When did that start for you? Uh, it, it was probably uh, eighth grade. We had uh, a, a newsletter that would go out at lunchtime on the, on the lunch tables, and uh, there would be little blurbs about all the sports teams. So I played on the eighth grade boys basketball team and but didn't play that much. And so my contribution was to like write lengthy, like a three-paragraph write-up of what our team would do the, the day before in a game, and then it would be in the newsletter, and all the other teams would maybe have two sentences of what how their game went, and we would get this, this pub uh, about how our games went, and, uh, you know, that, that was that's what I did. Uh, you know, I made sure that all the information made it in there, and, and my teammates seemed to enjoy it, and uh, I saw that, you know, more people were reading about our team than the other teams because someone took the time to actually be descriptive and, uh, you know, put more information out there. And, uh, yeah, I guess I got positive feedback from there. And then from then on, that's kind of, that's what I've done. <laughs> I've, I've written about basketball and, and tried to disseminate information about basketball. It's really uh, been amazing to watch, to watch the journey. But again, we, we all knew what, what you were capable of and it's become a breeding ground of sorts seeing you, uh, have success and and Kevin Nagandi had also worked on the show a few years before we were there and Kev's obviously a superstar sports center anchor as things moved along just to give people some more background about your career you went to Syracuse then there was a high school coaching stint in San Diego I think it was Dave it was I was living in Pacific Beach with a couple of my high school buddies uh 
you know, literally had no money, didn't have a car, which is not a good idea when you're living in San Diego, uh, but had spent the summer after my senior year of college working at college basketball camps up and down the East Coast and had got in touch with uh, a guy who, who was out there doing the same thing, who was a head coach out in San Diego. He said, hey, if you don't have nothing going on, you know, I'd hire you as an assistant. I can't really pay you anything, but you'll be a part of a program. And uh, and I had, uh, as I mentioned, my friends who had moved out there. So went there, uh, did it for about two months. Uh, so basically high school basketball season was just getting started uh, by the time I made my move out. But I had previously uh, given my resume to the NBA um, through, uh, through a friend I had uh, who had a connection there. And uh, one day I was in Laguna Beach, uh, returned home uh, to my laptop, fired it up, and I had an email from Russ Granick, who was the former uh, mm-hmm. deputy commissioner of the NBA. And that kind of got the wheels rolling. And, and uh, you know, within two weeks, I, I was moving back to the East Coast to, to start a job with NBA.com. So you're writing with NBA.com. The most fascinating parts of that for me was you doing and not getting any credit for it the gilbert arenas blog that was just blowing up nationally in basketball circles tell me about that experience for you it was uh really unexpected because i started nba.com on the news desk i worked nights and i would update team websites and i mean really it was a good to be have your foot in the door type of job but it wasn't asking me to to use interview skills or writing skills necessarily you write headlines um, but I'd be cutting photos and writing photo captions and scouring the web uh, to find headlines that we could um, have on our, our headline stack uh, on NBA.com. Uh, but I, I had just started in the features department um, after a year with the news desk. And, uh, again, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole. And we had a couple of our writers were overseas um, during the preseason for, you know, NBA Live, I guess they call it, NBA Europe Live or whatever. And so uh, we had uh, the Wizards had agreed to do this blog with Gilbert Arenas, and before that, you know, the NBA had already done some blogs with players uh, on NBA.com. Guys like Marcus Camby, Chris Kamen. Um, it was decent content, but it hadn't really caused a, a ripple outside of you know other media organizations paying attention to what was being written. Uh, so I, I take a train down to DC. Um, I'm like 23 years old at the time. I think, or 24 years old at the time. Gilbert's 24 years old at the time. Um, I'm supposed to get 20 minutes with him in the players' lounge. Um, we ended up spending about an hour and a half together the first time we met. Um, just we had a lot of mutual things to talk about. I mean, mostly it's like we're talking about basketball and sneakers and like movies, and um, we just worked. We hit it off. So. Um, I had a really solid first blog entry, I think, which helped uh, because I had a ton of content. And basically the process would be I would interview Gilbert and then present it on the blog as if he had written it himself. Uh, so it involves some editing. Um, it involves sometimes moving pieces around. But mostly it's authentic Gilbert's voice. Every once in a while I had to like write a sentence or two to transition from one spot to the another. But I, I didn't lose the integrity of, of what he was saying, and even to the point where, you know, if Gilbert spoke in broken English or um, used slang. I, I fought my editors to keep it that way because I wanted his voice to go through. Um, so originally it was supposed to be, you know, once, maybe once a month, twice a month. I call Wizards PR department. They put Gilbert on the phone. We talk for 10 minutes and get a new blog post. Um, but 
through the course of you know us having pretty good conversations when, when we did these posts, we kind of cut off cut out the middleman. We weren't going through PR. Gilbert and I, you know, would just text with one another, oh, "How are you feeling today? You want to do the blog?" And and that was like the next step. And then the third step was Gilbert just reaching out to me independently, and he just sent me a text that said "blog?" question mark And then I'd had to go find a landline so I could record the conversation. Um, yeah, this was like you know, I had days where you know I wake up in. New York City, the, the place, uh, my girlfriend's place, and um, I get that text, and it's like, okay, yeah, sorry, we're not going to brunch. I gotta go uh, <laughs> do do a blog with Gilbert, and uh, you know, it ended up being for for NBA.com at the time. Um, you know, it was kind of seen as as more of a corporate site, and uh, I think there was good crossover appeal that people like, oh, look at this kind of exciting content here, and also this is pre-Twitter. This is really, you know, one of the first years of Facebook. Um, so this is kind of before a lot of athletes, uh, you know, players, Tribune, things of that nature didn't exist. Uh, the idea of an athlete taking his voice and going directly to fans um, wasn't really occurring. Um, so I, I think we kind of hit the, the wave at the start of it, and uh, that led to a lot of interest. Well, I don't think you guys just hit the wave. I think you actually did play a big role in starting it. I think people saw what it could do for someone's career. And I think you deserve credit for that. And I don't think it's really been given because I don't think people, people remember the Gilbert Arenas blog and they remember how excited they were whenever they saw a new entry or read about a new entry because of something outrageous Gilbert was saying or revealing. But uh, obviously you had a major part in that. I know there was a story that you told me about one of his fans and about how he wanted to play, I think, one-on-one against Gilbert, and Gilbert told him to show up to the arena. Can you tell yeah, that story? Yeah, and this is a, this is a kid, and I, I, you know, I, I'm still friends with this kid, and how he's a, you know, a young man, I guess, on, on Facebook <laughs> today. Um, much like myself, I was a manager for the Syracuse basketball program. Uh, this guy ended up being a manager for the Villanova basketball program, and you know, that's kind of where we grew up, Adam, outside Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. But that was set up by Gilbert. Uh, this is a kid who grew up in the D.C. area and uh, had basically reached out through through the blog uh, in the comment section, constantly asking to, you know, hey, do you need any help rebounding or whatever? And, you know, Gilbert being kind of the open guy that he is and also being kind of a wonky schedule that he keeps, he's like, yeah, you show up at Horizon Center at, you know, maybe the first time was like 11 p.m. or something like that. The kid shows up, you know. Gilbert had told the security guard that, you know, someone's going to be showing up. He comes in, he rebounds him for a couple hours, and then throughout the course of that summer, I think he, the, the kid was going to be a freshman in, in college at the time. Uh, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight times showed up and, and helped Gilbert rebound. And, you know, basically the, all the experience was that this kid got to hang out with a NBA All-Star at the time. Maybe Gilbert hooked him up with some gear. Uh, but then when he became uh, a freshman, on campus, um, you know, I think Gilbert reached out to Lou Dolson, who reached out to Jay Wright, and and uh, the kid had a, you know had a job in basketball, working for uh, Villanova men's team as a manager. And uh, I mean, that's Gilbert was to this day still is, but uh, the amazing part to me, you know, all of a sudden I'm in the the realm or in the sphere of an NBA superstar. Um, you know, I, I know Gilbert kind of had a fall from grace, but let's not forget what he was at the time. I mean, he had his own mm-hmm. signature shoe for Adidas, three-time All-Star, dropped 60 points in a game against Kobe Bryant at, at Staples Center. He had all those game winners that one season. Um, I mean, he was he was really one of the probably the five most marketable athletes in the NBA at the time. And yet, he was super accessible doing things like that, doing things like where – a fan 
one night showed up at one of his hotel rooms uh, when he was on the road with the, with the Wizards with a pile full of posters, like we're talking 150 posters, and Gilbert signed every one, knowing full well that this guy was going to sell them, but he figured, you know, hey, he could probably use the money, and he took his time out of his, his, his night to do that. Um, and I don't think he really did that for the show. I think Gilbert did that because he came from nothing. You know, him and his father, when they first moved out to Los Angeles, were living in his father's car some at, at times when they couldn't find an apartment. And, uh, you know, he uh, he recognized that he was in, in a place of privilege and tried to spread that as much as he could. I'm curious about your thoughts on his fall. Why did it happen? Uh, well, I mean, listen, I mean, you're in one of the most unique situations ever. I think it was a bad combination of, of a guy who has an outrageous sense of humor in Gilbert and a guy in Javaris Crittenden who, you know, where his life has gone since, that incident in the Wizards locker room, you know, he he literally was convicted of murder earlier this year. Uh, so mm-hmm. someone who certainly is uh, it doesn't take uh, joking threats as a joke, uh, and so you, it was just a bad bad combination. And of course, we all know the story of them getting in a fight on the plane over over cards, you know, over a card debt, and. You know, Javar Crittenden making a, a threat to Gilbert that he would shoot him in his bad knee that he was overcoming from, and uh, you know, Gilbert taking the threat to the next level by bringing basically prop comic guns to the Wizards facility and putting them on Javar's. I mean, but literally these guns, like a dirty Harry gun, like Gilbert collected right. guns like that were like replicas from movies. Like these aren't, this isn't like. This isn't a Glock or something like that with no bullets in it. This like is, a Tommy gun. Comic, yeah, it's like a Tommy, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, Gilbert didn't know that at the same time, Javaris Crittenden had a loaded gun of his own in his jean pocket hanging in his locker at the time, um, which is, is just wild. And, and, of course, you know, um, when they came to that realization, you know, uh, Wizards players, you know, basically ran to the deck. I mean, literally, like, covered their heads and jumped to the floor uh they didn't know what was going to happen and and so that was obviously one of the most uh disturbing incidents in NBA history of course he was able to make a comeback Gilbert was um and and had you know some success with Orlando Magic uh but he could never really get his knee right and and uh he was given one more chance with the Memphis Grizzlies his knee really wasn't there and I don't think his head was really there in terms of being a a role player um after had been you know been such a a strong force of nature in the league and uh you know played in china for a little bit and, and now he's he's you know as far as i know he's he's retired there's no more uh comebacks he's trying to make that fall from grace as you so eloquently put it how do you think he took that i, I not very well and and you know to be honest I, I stayed in touch with him over the years and and even had some conversations with him because he was spending a lot of time out in l.a I went to go see some of his workouts, and you know, funny enough, like a guy like Damari Carroll, who just had this breakout year for the Hawks, he used to work out with Gilbert several times. I went and, and saw him, and it was kind of like, oh yeah, it's that guy who's like on the Jazz but doesn't really play. And now I'm like, oh wow, look, he's got paid sixty million dollars. Uh, but that's one of the guys that you know Gilbert worked out with up in Sherman Oaks, and he was still put in the time. But and, and sometimes he go do runs with the Lakers and Clippers players either at UCLA or at the Clippers practice facility, and he would tell me how he was, you know, toasting guys who were on the Lakers, like, you know, Steve Blake. Uh, he's like, Steve Blake can't, he can't guard me. Andrew Goudlock can't guard me. Darius Morris can't guard me. Uh, the problem was that at that point, 
in his career, uh, you know, he was probably most going to get offered as a veteran minimum. And, and if you're offering a veteran minimum contract to a guy, certainly there's, there's a type of conduct that the team would want from that uh, that player. And Gilbert's personality never became uh, any less outsized. And I, I think that was a deterrent to, to several NBA teams that, that would have considered him. Of course, the Lakers did take a look at him at the behest of Kobe Bryant and ultimately decided uh, that was during the year that Mike Brown coached the team and ultimately decided that, you know, it, I guess it wasn't worth the you know the potential distraction that Gilbert could bring. So uh, I don't think he did himself any favors in that department, but, you know, he's not the only guy to be in that, that case. You know, Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. obviously Iverson's peak was higher than, than Gilbert's was, but it was a very similar ending to Iverson's career as Gilbert's career where, you know, the guy just doesn't, accept or doesn't want to move on to a different phase so whereas you know we've seen guys in the past uh, Larry Johnson or Ron Harper you know these these players who were once dominant were able to transition into a excellent complimentary player and play on teams that win things and and kind of get to that next phase of their career uh you know for 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 Gilbert Arenas um you know I guess he wanted to do it his way which would be a dominant player um and uh you know never was able to either swallow his pride or or come to that realization that you know that that sometimes you just if you want to keep things going uh you had to accept a, a sublimated role well a couple things on that first of all it's interesting to me that uh basketball circles are so small Javaris Crittenden was Dwight Howard's high school teammate in uh, right. in Atlanta, Georgia, and you obviously ended up covering Dwight Howard later. It's 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 odd how uh, the degrees of separation. But your point about a player's willingness to accept that next phase of their career is really intriguing to me because you've covered two of the greatest players of all time. It's it's sort of what you become known for uh, in in some circles now, and that's Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. Now, when you're covering the Lakers, I want to segue into the idea of Kobe Bryant here, now a guy that is going to be facing this. We all face it. At some point or another, a coach is going to tell us that we're not good enough anymore, or in my case, uh, maybe he was telling me for a long time, you're not good enough, and just <laughs> that's where the sentence ended. But the one thing that's uh, been something where insiders have discussed it with me, but regular basketball fans don't seem to know about, is how legendary Kobe's workouts are. The stories are, are legendary. Can you give me one of his workout stories so people have some sense? Yeah, I mean, the, maybe my favorite one that I've heard is uh, he was in Las Vegas for USA Basketball Training Camp in 2008. And, uh, you know, they this is the Redeem team and everything like that prior to them going to Beijing. And they have a late practice. It might have been one of the first practices that they had in their mini camp in Vegas. You know, so maybe they start around 6 p.m. They're finished around 8. You know, the guys are leaving the gym to whatever, get dinner and go out on the town. I mean, you know, most of the guys on that team, you know, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, were young at the time and, and certainly enjoy nightlife. Uh, Kobe went, uh, got dinner, showered, come came back to the gym, um, and this was told through the eyes of a trainer that happened to be there. I think he may may have worked with um, one of the D1 colleges that had a, had a coach on on the staff, um, uh, or maybe some connection through Coach K or something like that. But uh, he asked the trainer to come back with him, and uh, so they they did like a a night workout, a post night workout. And uh, so let's just say 
you know, 10 p.m. till midnight, whatever. Get in a couple extra hours work, uh, and uh, the trainer says, uh, "All right, good stuff, Kobe. Thanks a lot for your time, and you know, I'll see you tomorrow." And then the next day, the USC basketball is somewhat early morning practice. Let's say the 10 a.m. start. Well, uh, the trainer comes back, you know, at nine or so, you know, whatever. He's he's there early enough and to do his job and show everybody that he's there on time. And Kobe's there, full sweat. The guy said, "Hey, uh, how long you been here?" He said, "Oh, I never left." <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this That's is incredible. You know, whether whether Kobe is you know exaggerating or not, you know, at least let's just say, even at the very least, that full sweat that means he probably got there two hours prior to that. So he's at least there at seven in the morning. Uh, so he has a, a full four or five hours extra practice of the first day of USA basketball training camp than any other player on the USA team. And I think that experience with USA basketball um, was really important to Kobe's career uh, in terms of connecting to teammates once again, because uh, he had kind of been alienated for, for years at that point uh, from his teammates. And of course that precipitated uh, him winning back-to-back championships. So he won a gold medal in 2008 and then, then went on to win two straight championships. Uh, but I think it also opened the eyes to the, the younger guys, Dwayne Wade, LeBron, Carmelo, Chris Paul, et cetera, who uh, didn't really have a connection to Kobe because there is an age gap there. And uh, they all saw the Kobe Bryant work ethic up close and personal and adopted it as their own moving forward. So Kobe's had an impact, a clear impact, on this next wave of superstars uh, in this league. And uh, you know, even though he's maybe not – the friendliest guy or, or sometimes, you know, a little bit of an awkward guy, uh, just the way he approached the game, he was able to uh, kind of have an influence over these guys. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Jack McCallum uh, did a great book on the 92 Dream Team. I'm, uh, somebody needs to do a, a really a in-depth look at the 2008 Redeem Team because uh, it was a really seminal moment in NBA history, uh, I believe. Well, I might be talking to the guy who should write it, but um, (laughs) the fact that Kobe has been just ripped relentlessly uh, and unfairly, I think, in a lot of ways for how he has been as a teammate has has irked me in a lot of ways, especially because we talk about how a lot of us as fans want the old school ways back into the NBA, you know, these true leaders, guys showing grit, uh, crazy work ethics, you know, but would be willing to call their teammates out. Larry Bird's done it. Anyone who studies history knows Magic's done it. Oscar did. I mean, through the years, uh, superstars have had a unique relationship with their teammates. So for Kobe individually, though, how would you describe how he was as a teammate? You know, it's difficult. I I think he grew in the time I was fortunate enough to cover him. Um, I I moved to Los Angeles in 2008, so uh, and I was there for a little bit of that that training camp I was just talking about in in Vegas in 2008. Um, He it was a transitional period for him, and I think I saw the best of Kobe uh, that he had to offer. Um, You know, the MVP campaign. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, integrating Pau Gasol and taking guys like Trevor Reza and Shannon Brown under his wing and making them better players um, uh, to the point where they could be contributors on a championship team. You know, Kobe does get kind of uh, criticized for not making his teammates better as much as some other guys do, but I think you look at those two guys in particular are, are case studies of 
people who came in wide-eyed and completely in awe of Kobe. And and he said, well, hey, you know, you got to get on this training regimen. you got to get on this shooting program. I need you guys to help me. You know, the only way I can win is if I get contributions out of, out of guys like you. And uh, he had a tremendous impact on those guys' career. Um, we always talk he's the son of an NBA player, and, and you think of him early on in his career, and he's jumping out the gym, and, okay, this guy was just blessed with talent. And I don't think that's the true story of Kobe Bryant. I think Kobe really is a tactician. He's someone who devoted his life to the game. He's someone who, you know, his footwork became unparalleled in his prime. And uh, he really is the combination of the natural talent and, and the work that's put in. And I think he kind of resents the fact that early on in his career, he was just considered the supernova. Um, you know, that Vince Carter was the supernova. Uh, Kobe was the, the, the case study in work ethic. And, uh, certainly has an outsized ego, but I don't think you can succeed in this game if you don't. Uh, and, you know, I, I think he's someone that ultimately uh, overachieved in his career. Um, you know, the, the thing with Kobe, though, he's always that number. So Because he made it such a priority, you know, the championship count and wanted to chase Jordan, catch Jordan, um, he's always going to be associated with the number. And that's why I think the way his career has, has kind of wound down and the fact that he took that $48 million extension when some of his contemporaries and Tim Duncan and Dirk Nowitzki were doing just the opposite. And, and you know, Tim Duncan's going to get paid $5 million next season. Kobe's going to get paid 23 mm-hmm. uh, And Tim Duncan's going to play on a contender, and Kobe's not. Uh, I think that, you know, if Kobe, he has so attached himself to that championship pursuit for so long, uh, you know, he becomes a bit of a hypocrite the way that uh, the end of his career went down. Do you think that it has been selfish of him? I mean, I had this debate with someone earlier this summer um, when the the Lakers struck out on the Marcus Aldridge and DeAndre Jordan. The fact of the matter is that even though Kobe took all that money, they did have a max contract space this summer. And even though they did have two really down years the last two seasons, they got two potential blue chippers out of it maybe even three if Jordan Clarkson pans out as a second-round pick, but certainly D'Angelo Russell and Julius Randle. So the plan kind of worked. All you would need to do is get a guy to come in with that money. So I don't think his contract necessarily precluded the the Lakers from competing at the end of his career. I think his injuries more so. I mean, (laughs) if he can't stay on Mm -hmm. the court, well, you know, there's no chance. If you're paying a guy that much money and he only plays eight games two seasons ago and um, however many was last year, I mean, that's not going to get it done. Uh, but I, I do believe that, uh, that, you know, he knows the business of basketball. He knows that he was underpaid for a long time. You know, obviously he was paid handsomely, but he was underpaid in the grand scheme of things. You know, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski wrote a story a couple of years ago, um, quoting Jerry Buss telling a source that, you know, Kobe meant as much to 70 to $80 million a year to the bottom line for his team. Well, mm. you know, when he's getting paid at that time, he was getting paid 15 to $20 million a year. That's grossly underpaid. And so someone who understands the business of basketball, and someone certainly Kobe has a, has a business mind, and, and he's done, you know, he has his own uh, marketing company, and, and he's very involved and very hands-on with all his business partners. Um, I, I think that mattered to him to feel like he was getting what he had earned, and I, I, you got to respect someone for that. 
but at the same time, you can't have it both ways. And, and certainly, you know, for a long time, he also, again, the only thing he said he was obsessed with getting ring number six in an interview with Stephen A. Smith, and he he kind of expressed that same sentiment over and over again in interviews. Um, well, I mean, if he was really obsessed with it, and I, I think you would have saw him take a lower deal so they could convince more talent to come in. Do you ever see Kobe taking a role that's not the alpha dog on a team? I just don't see it. And it's a shame because the guy has great court vision and, and you know could be a 10 assist per game guy should he choose to be that. Um, and I, I think he even struggled with the minute limitation that, that Byron was putting on him last year. Um, that that kind of felt inauthentic to, to Kobe. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't think he wants to do that. I don't think he wants to go down that road. Um, and, again, I mean, it's hard to relate to a guy like that. I mean, he scored 81 points in a game, Adam, you know. So, like, it's easy for us to try to put ourselves on the same level. like, like Exactly. Thinking like a rational human being, et cetera, et cetera. But when you've – you know, we got nine straight forty-point games at one point in his career, five straight fifty-point games. Um, you know, the, the things that he was able to accomplish. You know, now he has, you know, the third most points in NBA history. He's in a different stratosphere, and, and to ask someone like that to make that adjustment maybe is asking too much. I don't know. Um, you know, you didn't see John Wayne start play supporting actor roles late in his career or anything like that. You know, so um, you know. I think he's going to stick to his guns and, and be the guy that he is. The question mark is that if he is going to not make any sort of transition um, and say he still feels healthy next year after year 20 in, the, in, the, in his career, what mm-hmm. interest do the Lakers have in continuing to feed the Kobe Bryant game? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Mitch Kupchak, I think, has made, you know, without coming out and going against Kobe because that's a dangerous territory when it comes to Lakers fans, but he's made it pretty clear that, okay, 20 and done, you know, like great right. run, buddy. Uh, but we got plans to move forward. Um, I, I think things could get pretty interesting next off season. If Kobe does want to extend his career, um, I'm not so sure if it would occur in, in with the Lakers. For sure. Do you think he cares about the all time scoring title? I do, but I don't think he thinks it's realistic. I think he's done the math. I mean, he would have to play basically, I think two more seasons, after this season at, at like a 20 point per game clip. And uh, as we've seen the last two years, he couldn't even get through, um, you know, play, play a full year. So uh, I think he would like it. I think passing MJ was kind of, he got that. And, and, and of course you saw the amount of media he did around that. Um, you know, he's, he's always been pretty open with the media, but that he made sure to kind of bring more gravitas to that moment because, you know, probably knowing in the back of his head, he's probably not going to get to Kareem or Carl, but you know, this will be his kind of victory lap of, Hey, I passed Michael Jordan. Well, the next guy in line for all this is LeBron James. And obviously you've been lucky enough to cover him this, this past season uh, and moving on to, to next year as well. Kobe and LeBron, two of the all time greats. So obviously different personalities, but what separates guys like those from the rest of the league? Well, I'll say I'll just compare them first because I've gotten this question a bunch of times, and I like my answer to it. So I'm sure <laughs> Good. So I Good. think Kobe at his his best on the court. The other nine guys don't matter. Like he, you know, his teammates don't mm-hmm. matter, and the defense doesn't matter. Like none of them will affect his uh, having impact on the game. I think LeBron at his best. 
manipulates all those nine guys. So he puts the defense where he wants them and then gets the best out of those four teammates. So, I mean, I think both in, in their prime and when they're in their zone, it's, it's a thing of beauty to watch, but it's a completely different approach to the game. Uh, I think what literally separates them is mental toughness. Uh, I know the average guy out there doesn't have the capacity to put such a high expectation on their themselves and achieve it night to night. And, you know, really the way that happens, of course, it's, you know, the way that happens is, is talent. And the way that happens is hard work. And the way that happens is the franchise wanting you to fulfill that role. But beyond that, it is the mental toughness and, and the dedication that, you know, I mean, just think about the, the pressure to be, you know, one of those guys on a, for one day, let alone day after day after day. And uh, I think that's, that's the kind of common link that they both share. You wrote about many times uh, the relationship between LeBron and, and David Blatt, but Mark Stein wrote the, the piece that, that blew up. How is the relationship between Le, LeBron and Blatt? I think there's, you know, there's plenty of room for growth there. Um, I don't think it's a great relationship. I don't think it's a toxic relationship. I think, uh, you know, both guys are ultimately about winning, and, and I think um, LeBron realizes that it would probably be counterproductive to, to make things worse than they already were. And, and they were, I, I think, pretty bad in, in December or January as the season uh, kicked off last year, and, and the Cavs just couldn't find their way. But I, I think, you know, to both of their credit, they found a communication system and a conduit through Ty Lue that, that make things work. I mean, it, it's not a secret that LeBron communicates more with Ty Lue throughout the course of the game than he does with David Blatt. And it's not a secret that David Blatt kind of handed over the defense to Ty Lue when they made the trades midseason to acquire Timofey Mozgov and J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert. Um, now, you know, if, if Blatt doesn't trust that coach and or if he has a hissy fit about the way things – the way LeBron chooses to communicate, you know, he maybe he doesn't have his job. Um, but I, I think all sides have made it a, a functioning team that moves forward, that, you know, cares about the right things. And I think, you know, Ty Lue deserves a ton of credit because if he wasn't as capable in that role, and that's not an easy role to be in, to, you know, make your coach not feel like you're going behind his back or superseding his power – where at the same time being able to relate to the players, and especially if the players, you can sense that maybe there is some frustration with the head coach. What an amazing balancing act that, that Ty Lue was able to pull off. Um, but um, now David Blatt's prepared. David Blatt is uh, certainly competitive and confident, and I think actually that kind of persona uh, that, that he brought helped the Cavs in the playoffs last year because it was like, oh, whatever, we lose Kevin, we're fine. We lose Kyrie, we'll figure it out. Um, I think they, they did feed off that as a team. But, again, I, I don't think this is a uh, a perfect marriage between the two. Well, I asked the question also because since you've covered Kobe and LeBron, do you find the same similarities, even though they're two different guys, in the issues that these mega superstars have with their head coach? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, Phil Jackson coached Kobe when I covered that team. And Kobe would – gesture to Brian Shaw if he was on the bench and wanted to get in the game. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. And then Brian would tell Phil. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that, again, in Mark Stein's column, I don't, uh, again, making it look like it was 
overstepping boundaries to change a play call or something like that, like LeBron had done. I mean, the team had both LeBron and Kyrie. Kyrie, after the first game of the year when they lost to the Knicks, told us in the media that him and David Blatt were uh, being animated over play call discussions. And then (laughs) even as late as January, when the team started to turn things around and the the Cavs won that second night of the back-to-back in L.A. against the Clippers when Kevin Love was out with a back injury. Again, both Kyrie and LeBron said, well, we we got things going in the second half because me and Kyrie just started calling the plays. That was on the record. (laughs) It was out there. So (laughs) the fact that in the playoffs, players are, you know, being changed by those two guys as well, I don't think there should be anything surprising here, nor do I think it should be something that you would choose to – be a, a point that you would you would criticize LeBron over. So but I think Kobe Bryant at that time when Phil was coaching him, he looked in the mirror every day and said, oh, I'm looking at the best player of all time. And I think <laughs> LeBron kind of believed that as well. Uh, well, what, what's a coach going to do for you? You know, even the, even the most <laughs> capable coaches uh, can't, can't really satisfy everything you'd want. Um, so I think it makes it, the, that I think is one reason why we should kind of, recognize the job that David Blatt has done and making sure this team didn't go off the rails. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a recognition that, you know, uh, there is going to be something lacking uh, because unless he's the greatest coach of all time, which, you know, Phil might've been, and, and even that there was still a, a gap between him and Kobe. Um, it, it's hard to completely satisfy uh, someone who, who views himself as one of the best players of all time. It's got to be the most difficult position. I mean, you want to defer, but at the same time, you don't want to pander. It, it, you're constantly in this balancing act of, uh, you know, showing authority, but also showing respect to this all-time great. Plus, as you, no matter who the coach is, unless Bill Russell wants to put his uh, coaching hat back on, you're not going to be dealing with a coach that is has experience winning titles and being the face of the franchise like like you were. So I think it's almost an impossible situation for those guys. I'm always curious as to how those relationships play out. What's the chemistry like between Kyrie, LeBron, and Kevin Love? They get along. Uh, I, those three in particular, I wouldn't say any of those three are very close. Um, it's not like when they hang out on the road, when, when there's group dinners on the road. Those three usually aren't dining together um but they're you know a guy like mike miller who you know kind of got he's become become a running joke i guess at this point in his career and this this is what bothers me about nba twitter and nba fans and they they take a guy and they turn him into like a punchline like similar like deon waiters jr smith both those guys oh my god shot happy and you know what are they going to do next and you know well, they're talented basketball players in the day, and, and Mike Miller is someone who was just looked at as albatross of a contract. And oh my gosh, he's icing his knees before games. The guy's so old. Get him to a YMCA game. Well, he was probably right. the most important player in that locker room in bridging the gap between those three players because he was close with all of them, and he, and he would have people over at his house, you know, watch Monday Night Football and things of that nature. And they would all, all three of them would trickle through because they all had strong relationships with Mike. I don't know. It's hard, I guess, to express it to the average fan because you just see Mike on the bench, you know, cheering or whatever. Sometimes he comes out drinking a coffee on the bench or energy drink on the bench, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, this guy's 40 years old or whatever. But um, because you have you have a guy like a Mike Miller on last year's teams or a James Jones or a Sean Marion, these 
ultimate professionals who really did build the team culture uh, because they were starting from scratch, of course, that Cavs team with so many new faces. Uh, that's what made, I think, the relationship between LeBron and those guys um, all – it never got too bad. I mean, LeBron was frustrated with Kevin last year, and, you know, as I, I wrote it several times, and, of course, the whole, you know, tweet incident about the fit in, fit out, that was a direct aim at Kevin mm-hmm. Love. And because, you know, the, the Cavs were winning games at, at a, a pretty strong clip at that point, and you still had Kevin Love making some comments about his role in the offense and whether he was playing the fourth quarter games or not. Now, role in the offense, probably not the smartest thing for him to say. Not playing in the fourth quarter of games, I I agree with Kevin Love, and I think that was on David Blatt. David Blatt should never allow that situation to occur, but he was coaching the way he coaches in Europe. And in the NBA, you do not bench a player who's going to be an impending free agent going for a max contract in the fourth quarter of games. Like, he just... You just don't do that. Get him a couple minutes. Even if you think the matchups aren't in favor for you to have him out there, get him a couple minutes so it's not a story. And that, I think that's you know, what David Blatt has to own up to, that he was involved in some of the reason why that, that appeared to be a rift between Kevin and LeBron. Kevin's just frustrated, man. He went from being a 26-13 and 13 guy to not playing in the fourth quarter five times. Um, so I, I think that there, there was you know, some reality to – the things that that was that were there, but it was mostly rooted in frustration. Um, I don't think there was any personal qualms that that any of those three had with one another. Like, and uh, you know, I, I think LeBron recognizes just how young they are. <laughs> like, Kyrie's 22 years old, and you know, I had several conversations with him. Like, yeah, he's 22. Like, he's like, you know, LeBron's aged a lot and matured a lot from that time he entered the league to it being a 30 year old now, and just finding that common ground, you know, I don't think he ever quite got there with Kyrie, but certainly the respect factor, um, you know, when he, I think basically when, when, he, when LeBron had to sit out that game against the Blazers and Kyrie goes for 55, I think that was a major turning point where he was like, wow, this guy, he's special and, and he can do a lot uh, for our team and for me personally as I get into the next phase of my career. So I, I think overall – uh, those three, uh, they, they're going to work it out. And I think it's only going to get stronger the longer they're together. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, obviously. So we saw Kevin Love go down early in the playoffs against the Celtics. Then Kyrie goes down. So expectations are extremely low heading into the finals. And LeBron's performance, epic. Uh, there's a million adjectives to describe it, but let's just stick with epic. So in a sense the team surpassed expectations at the start of the series, but obviously any team that has LeBron James, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, regardless of the reason, if they don't win a championship, then they don't meet expectations. So how were they after everything went down and the dust settled? I think there's just, you get so close that it just it haunts you. LeBron did an interview with Bleacher Report over the weekend, and he said that he still has nightmares about it. And I don't think he's being overly dramatic there because you know, even with losing Kevin Love and and losing Kyrie, you know, they had a chance to win Game One. They win Games Two and Three. It's like they could have been up three zero. Yeah, they they had a clunker in in Game Four, but Game Five, you know, it's like uh, they have a four point lead close to midway through the fourth quarter on the road you know and if they win that game they're up 3-1 headed back to Cleveland for game six and you know they, they probably get the championship so 
I, I think knowing that you're so close, there's no way you're not going to be disappointed. But I think when you step away from it, uh, what they were able to do, and with so much change throughout the season, a brand new team, Andy Varejao goes down before Christmas. LeBron takes two weeks off in, in January to get his body and his mind right, which is unprecedented in terms of he'd never done that before in his career. Uh, and then you lose those two big guys down the line. The fact that you just got to where you did and, and you kind of did establish a culture of a team and, and now the Cavs know what they're about and they were about that for about five straight months um, from January to the end of the playoffs, I think they all feel good about what's going to occur next season. And I think that's the important part because, listen, I, I covered that first year full-time in L.A. I covered the Lakers coming off a six-game loss to the Celtics in the finals. And that really set the agenda for that team. And they had a purpose and they had a drive that took them all the way to the championship against the Orlando Magic. The San Antonio Spurs, after they lost game seven in the finals, to the Heat, same thing. They came back the next year on a purpose, on a mission, and, and came back and avenged that loss. I think the Cavs will have that type of personality next season. Plus the fact that you've got all these role players that got crazy experience playing in the finals and uh, knowing that they can play with LeBron James now. I thought the, the Del Vadova thing was so interesting to me because usually guys come in, you saw it early in the finals, guys come into games and everyone's jittery in the finals. But a lot of times for role players, they come in, they play, you know, eight, nine minutes, and they look just horrible. Everybody looks bad in the first few minutes of their final series. Uh, so it was it was kind of cool to see Del Vadova uh, in some strong stretches. Obviously, we all saw him get his pub, but just the fact that a guy like that was able to get some time and get himself comfortable. I'm always interested to see when, when role players can do that kind of thing. I want to I ask you quickly for you to tell me, I want to have some fun with this. Can you tell me something we don't know in just a couple sentences about each of the following players? I'm just going to rip some names out and you just tell me I'll some things the average fan wouldn't know. Okay, Dwight Howard. He walks around the locker room pregame with his game shorts on and his cell phone clipped to his game shorts and no shirt. And he spends plenty of time like that, and he looks ridiculous. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Okay. Steve Nash. Uh, just a very thoughtful person, someone who uh, you know will, will read something and send you a text or an email, uh, you know, give you thoughts on, on what you wrote, at least me personally. Um, and uh, pretty much universally considered the best teammate uh, anybody has ever had. Any person I've ever spoken to that played with Steve Nash would consider him the best teammate they've had. Wow. Pau Gasol. Uh, man, what to say about Pau? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, memory-wise, about Pau is we were post-game doing an interview uh, on a Sunday afternoon game, and there was an earthquake that went through Los Angeles. <laughs> and, <laughs> We're in the middle of the scrum and asking questions, and literally, like, all of us were, like, so it was called a rolling earthquake, so it's not the normal, like, shaking one. It kind of, like, goes like a sinusoidal wave, and it kind of goes through your body, and you feel like you're about to faint. And uh, just, I can look at his, like, I can still see his face in my mind when I think about it, that, uh, what, did that just happen? And what the heck, should we all stop talking about free throws and go find cover somewhere. So I guess that's my Pogasol story. Sure. The fact that you two shared an earthquake together, I think qualifies as something most people wouldn't know about. Uh, Kyrie Irving. Uh, things like 
you often find him singing in in the locker room when he's tying his sneakers or uh or you know whatever watching game film uh and it's like pop culture stuff like excuse me pop music stuff like he's singing maroon 5 and rihanna and and whatever is top 40 um which is funny because you know he's kind of at that tough warrior type of mentality he likes to you know he has the scraggly beard and everything like that but he's he's singing like you know Ciara and whatever whatever the the top MTV uh, type music is of the day. Kevin Love. Kevin Love. Kevin Love. Uh, I think still looks at himself as this kind of pudgy kid growing up, and so the attention that he receives now as being kind of like a heartthrob is like crazy to him i think and so that's why i think he puts himself out there and does things like espn the body issue and gq covers and things like that because i think it's literally amazing to him that wow this is i'm the same guy that you know i was like the fat kid and now like all these you know women are saying i'm this handsome sex symbol um i think like the psychology behind that is really interesting because uh you know ultimately a lot of these guys in the nba are just have insane confidence that just exudes from their pores. I don't think Kevin's one of those guys. I think he's kind of kind of corroborating that in his mind between the insecurity he felt when he was younger to now like the adulation he's receiving and, and trying to uh, figure out a way to, to make those two match. I love this. I could do this all day, but I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm only going to give you two more here. Uh, J.R. Smith. Sarah Smith is, you know, again, his reputation preceded him before I got a chance to cover him on a day-to-day basis. He's a, he's a, he really is a, is a sweet guy. Like, uh, looks in the eye and he answers your question. He loves hoops. Um, he gets the whole idea of, like, this is entertainment ultimately. Um, and, uh, the guy loves golf. I mean, he whenever there was an off day last season for the Cavs, that's, the conversation he's having with Jeff Schaefer, the Cavs PR department, who also golfs a lot, is, oh, you think, okay, yeah, you're going to get on the links tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, me, me too. Um, so um, I, I think the, the guy's reputation doesn't really match with who he really is. Uh, Della Vadova. So Della Vadova is one of the least interesting people I've ever talked to in an interview, but I think it's all planned because he came into the NBA – undrafted with a non-guaranteed contract. So I think his mindset was just literally like, don't do anything to cause a stir or a wave. Um, just stay focused and work hard and be the first guy in the gym, last guy out of the gym. Um, because anything else tangential can only hurt my cause. And as of course, in the second year in the league, he was became made a name for himself. I don't think he let that go. So, um, you know, someone who I, I've tried to approach many times to try to strike up a, a off-the-record conversation or anything like that, but he just shuts it down. Uh, but I don't think it's because he's a boring person. I think it's literally that's a his tactical move um, where he's so focused on making sure he can have an NBA career that, you know, uh, joking with the media is not going to help that cause. You mentioned Mike Miller earlier, and uh, instead of asking you for a story about Mike Miller, I can give you one. When LeBron and and Carmelo were playing each other in New Jersey, primetime shootout in Trenton during their high school days. Uh, I went to the game with my brother afterwards, 
we were covering the game. I was covering the game and I brought my brother along with me afterwards. We're leaving. We're in the parking lot and we bump into Mike Miller, who at the time NBA player, I think in his rookie year. And, you know, he ended up winning rookie of the year award. Mike Miller's wearing a Larry Bird jersey, which was mind blowing to me that a guy would be wearing another Easter Conference team jersey, regardless if it was a, a special throwback or not. We said to him, hey, Mike Miller, you know, we we were at the Corn Palace once in South Dakota where Mike Miller actually played his high school basketball games in, I think it's, uh, I forget the name of the town, Mitchell, South Dakota, I think. But there's a Corn Palace, and that was his home gym, which you even may know about that. But he just turned to us and said, man, that kid could play. And he was talking about LeBron. And it's I'm always reminded of that story because now the relationship and the friendship that they have, and you see them on the court together, and you think of almost like, Mike Miller's probably always, you know, deferring to LeBron or he's getting jobs because of LeBron when in actuality, Miller was an NBA star for uh, lack of a better term. And LeBron was still in high school. So Miller was a fan for, for a long time. Dave, uh, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you just a couple quick questions if I could about actual reporting process for ESPN, because I think the work that you do is really great. I know it's awesome to tell stories, but I was curious for some of the younger people maybe listening or even people that just want to jump careers and get into it. How do you build contacts? I mean, a lot of it's just, just time. I mean, you can't, Woody Allen says what 90% of success is showing up. I mean, if if you're around enough and, and you are intelligent enough to hold a conversation, uh, you just do that with people that are around and there's no person who is, you know, too small or, or too big. Um, so, you know, you're talking with locker room attendants, you're talking with training staff members, you're talking with assistant coaches, you're talking with, um, you know, not just the biggest guy at the agency, not just the Bill Duffy, but the people who work below him who answer the phones. Um, that's, to me, I think is the the best way to go about it. That's, that's the only way I know to go about it. Uh, because you know, I'm not a big fan of small talk in general, and you know, I think you have to kind of do some of that and kind of BS a little bit to uh, just to open up the doors to have a real conversation. Um, so that's kind of always been the easiest thing. But like, it, it's, it's it's having knowledge, you know, information is currency in this business, and you know, even like you were just talking about, you know, LeBron James playing in high school, you meeting Mike Miller, like you took me to the ABCD tournament and we saw him hit a LeBron hit close to a half court shot against Lenny Cook to win the game uh-huh. you know I had that memory and then that experience and that knowledge and I was able to talk to LeBron about that this year talk to one of the people in LeBron's camps about that this year um, and it was like okay you know what you're talking about but the only way I know what I was talking about because I actually did it you know so uh, that's to me the you know you just be be a capable, well-read. Um, know know your game, history of the game. I mean, so many conversations I at least have with players is just about NBA history, or you know, this guy is better than this guy, or et cetera, et cetera. And if you know what you're talking about, then you're going to be able to actually they'll remember who you are. They'll want to have more conversation with you in the future. Um, that's kind of been the way I, I've tried to build my source base. Do you find? especially in the wake of all this criticism and also in the interest of full disclosure, I worked at ESPN. Uh, We actually worked on the NBA Today podcast together for about a week, Dave and I. Um, But do you find that uh, ESPN standards for journalists are higher 
than other places? I mean, at least on the NBA side, uh, I can tell you it's it's a pretty strong vetting process that we do, um, and it's also a very collaborative effort between our NBA reporters, uh, which um, I appreciate certainly. You know, because I'm you know now been doing this job for about ten years, but we have plenty of people on our staff that have twice as much experience as I do in the field. So um, having those people to lean on. Um, you know, Mark Stein's kind of our captain, I, I should say. He's our senior most reporter. And, uh, you know, his mantra is certainly, you know, get it right. You know, getting it first is a bonus, but get it right is what we need. And um, we can also uh, really set ourselves apart by our in-depth analysis and our, our further reactionary pieces and things of that nature. And, you know, breaking news is the name of the game. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that this lets us off the hook from breaking news. But, um, you know, ESPN being the entity that it is, this this huge thing, it, it's open for pot shots, um, uh, right or wrong. And um, in order to maintain that integrity and that reputation in a positive light, we can't be getting things wrong. So, that, I mean, that's that's really the, the kind of the mantra that we all try to adopt. And I think, yeah, it is pretty high standards uh, to be an ESPN, certainly NBA reporter. Look, we all saw what happened, uh, the very public Twitter debate uh, between Chris Broussard and Mark Cuban over everything that was the soap opera of DeAndre Jordan and where he was going to sign. And uh, it, it, it became everyone had, a, had an opinion, everyone had a chance to weigh in, uh, and they were going back and forth in a public forum, basically Broussard reporting that Cuban was driving around uh, in Texas, you know, trying to call anybody who could possibly get him information and get him in touch with DeAndre. You know, I I, I made the comparison as though it, it, the scene was almost painted like uh, it was Mark Wahlberg's character in Fear chasing down, you know, Reese, <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. But but I, I don't necessarily want I don't want to ask you about about that per se that's between Broussard Cuban and the sources and 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 the real story and I'm sure all that will come out at at one point in time about what actually went down and and everything what I am curious about from your perspective is can you tell me about a time you wrote something about a player or coach and there was a certain level of fear because of how they may react once they were going to read it um I mean, I, I I took a, you know, again, we know Powell is just an excellent human being, and it it's not my really personality to be overly critical. Like, I try to see the good side of things, but I wrote a pretty scathing column uh, with some uh, information from uh, what I presented as unnamed sources in it um, uh, during Powell's final season with the Lakers uh, before he went to Chicago, my final season covering the Lakers as well. Uh, basically saying that, you know, he he had taken uh, a lot of time coming back from uh, nasal infection or uh, sinus infection, and the team was kind of tired of it. And you know, he's the highest paid player on the team, and you know, the captain, you know, he needs to set an example, and you know, kind of took a measured shot. And that, you know, I certainly think was was harsh, but I don't think it was it passed the, the line of being unfair. But um, you know, I, I didn't. I know that Powell didn't appreciate it, and uh, quite frankly, a lot of Lakers fans, you know, had not very kind words for me to to go there. But 
you know, I'm hearing from people um, that I trusted uh, their opinion of, of the situation um, and the information they provided to me, what was going down, that I was actually expressing what re- really was, you know, reading the room of that locker room and how they felt about Powell at that time. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of an uncomfortable situation, but that's that's really the role of the press, I think, in some ways, um, to show something that otherwise wouldn't be known. Um, you know, a fan can have an opinion of what's going on, you know, but it doesn't mean that their opinion is valid. So uh, that certainly made me uncomfortable. And then, you know, just whenever you're, you know, the DeAndre saga reminded me of, you know, the Dwight saga, uh, the Dwight mayor, whether he's going to leave the Lakers or not. And, you know, there was times that reporting was going so quick where I literally, there was a time I was doing a phone interview for SportsCenter and texting with the source at the time. And, they, I, I presented information on SportsCenter. It was maybe a three or four minute clip, and throughout the course, whatever I had said that had been accurate, um, the, that information had changed. And my source texted me, and I had to say, "Hey, uh, excuse me, Jonathan Coachman, I actually have fresh information," and literally change it while I'm on air. And it was like it was wild to me. I'd never been in, in that situation before. You just want to be accurate and up to date as possible, but that's. The, these things move so quick that I think myself and a lot of us, certainly, you know, some of my colleagues at ESPN that were asked to present our news on multi-platforms, that um, it, it, it literally changes every day, and you got to be ready for that. Well, it's obviously a very difficult job, and you bring up a great point that you're dealing with the fan bases from these different organizations when you're covering the Lakers. You're going to have some people that love you, and then you're going to have people, no matter what. Uh, have uh, some negative things to say, and you're doing it in a public forum on Twitter. I'm sure that the Lakers fan bases and Cavs fan bases have been, for the most part, very kind with you. I've seen them be kind with you. But I I appreciate the work that you do, and uh, I I think you've really uh, impressed me. I know I've said it privately to you a bunch, but want to tell you publicly, I'm really proud of the work you've done, Dave, and uh, I appreciate uh, everything through the years, including the friendship, and thank you so much for being on today. Absolutely. And uh, hey, man, uh, you were one of the people I I kind of looked up to to try to do this job the right way. So uh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, well, I am proud of you and uh, appreciate you jumping on. Hopefully we can get you on again soon because I love talking to you and I know you got all this great stuff that a bunch of people are interested in hearing. Absolutely. Sounds good. There you have it. He's a friend, very talented at what he does. He's spent a lot of time around a lot of great players and offers a lot of insight into those guys. Really very thankful that he jumped on and was willing to go as deep as he did in, into some of those things. And, and Dave's right. We, I did take him to the, the ABCD camp and we did see LeBron hit his famous game winner. Uh, once again, see when I worked on this high school sports show way back when I was supposed to be going to these events and, and covering, uh, you know, all these great athletes. And yet, I just wanted other people to experience it with me. And I think that's what happens a lot of time in television or as a, as a journalist, you're getting these unique experiences and you just want to share it with others. And so Dave was a part of the ride uh, for me early on in my career when he was just in high school and uh, we had some great experiences together and we still do. So thank you to Dave McMiniman. You can catch him on Twitter at Mc10. You can catch the Great Point Podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod, and you can catch me, Adam Stanko, at Naismith Lives.
As always, we greatly appreciate your time and we'll catch you next time.